Well, it's a good day, isn't it? Yes. Praise the Lord. I invite you to turn to your, in your Bibles to John chapter, nine, uh, John chapter 20 this morning. We'll begin in verse 19. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find one provided for you in the pew rack in front of you. That'll be on page 906. In fact, if you don't have a Bible, we invite you to uh, take the Bible in front of you in the pew rack. That's our gift to you. We love for you to have a, a copy of the Word of God. And as you turn there, I know many of you have wondered, are we going to return to Philippians? And our plan is to, in a couple weeks, we'll resume uh, Philippians. But this morning, I wanted to preach the next text that followed the text that we considered last Sunday as we think about the mission in which God has sent us on. Maybe help us prepare uh, for this weekend as we have uh, six or seven missionaries coming and challenging us and helping us understand the call of God on our lives and our church. And so I trust God will be pleased with His Word this morning and giving it to us. You found your way to John chapter 20. We begin in verse 19. Hear now the Word of God. On the evening of, the first, of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from everyone, it is withheld. Father in heaven, we, we thank you for this morning and opportunity to consider your word. We pray that you would help us and, and teach us, that you would come and serve us this morning, that we might know you. We might know your will for our lives, your will for our church, that we might be um, more clearly understand who we are to be and how we are to live. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. On June 18th, 1815, uh, the French army under com the command of Napoleon fought the Battle of Waterloo against the English forces commanded by the Duke of Wellington. News of, of that battle, of course, would have been of particular interest to those in England. And so they, they set up a series of signalmen in order to proclaim the news of the outcome. A signalman was placed on the top of Winchester Cathedral, and he was told to keep an eye out upon the sea. When, when he uh, received a message from the sea, he was to pass it on to another signalman on a hill nearby, and he would pass it on to another, and then to another, and it's that way that news would finally reach London. Well, eventually the signalman sighted a ship through the thick fog of the English uh, uh, Channel, and the man aboard the ship signaled the first word, Wellington. He then signaled the second word, defeated. And it's at that time that the thick English fog rolled in and the ship was shrouded. Wellington defeated was the message that was sent on throughout England. It was the message that they received, followed quickly by gloom and despair amongst the English. Their last best hope against Napoleon's army was crushed. It was not until three hours later that the fog lifted. And the man aboard the ship signaled again, Wellington defeated the enemy. 
And as soon as that news went across England, their despair was set aside for jubilation and celebration. They were victorious. Well, some thousands of years ago on a Friday, a man named Jesus hung upon the cross. His followers were overcome with sorrow. They read a message on that cross. It, it read, Jesus defeated. And they retreated into their sorrow and despair. It was not until three days later, on Sunday morning, when the message was completed, Jesus defeated the enemy. He defeated all that stood against them and rose up in victory. And the impact upon that cowering group of disciples was massive. It cannot be overstated. These men and women whose religious leader was executed by the Roman government as a state uh, criminal, as a capital criminal, and they cowered in fear. And yet rather than disintegrating as countless others religious movements have and I trust will have, This group of of maybe 100, 120 individuals without any allies or resources or power or wealth or education or influence of any prominent figure within a generation had spread their message to every part of the Roman Empire. How can that possibly happen? what, What was their word? Well, you, all you have to do is read the book of Acts. For you see, when Peter first stands up in Pentecost, he announces, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Or in Acts chapter 3 and verse 15, You killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Or in Acts chapter 10, God raised him on the third day and made him to appear to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses. Their testimony that they bore witness to that though Christ has been crucified, Christ has risen. He is alive. And they saw it. We've testified to it. We are witnesses of it. Now, I'm well aware that it is not Easter Sunday. So, but nevertheless, I think it would be wonderful for us to continue to consider on this Lord's Day, of course, the day in which we celebrate the resurrection of of the Lord, to consider once again the resurrection of Christ and the impact that it has upon the people of God, the impact that it has upon the church. In fact, you see the the impact uh, throughout this text as Christ comes and gives them his peace and marks them with his joy and directs them with his purpose and empowers them through his spirit and gives them his message. And so let's consider this morning these five gifts that the resurrected Lord brings. You see, first of all, that the church is given peace. Notice verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews... You see, the apostles have gathered together and they are somewhat scared to death to do so, to assemble like this. Jesus has just been crucified and and they are undoubtedly thinking that they are next on the list that the Jews may stamp out this new religious movement. And so the door, according to John's gospel, is locked tight. And you wonder if they're listening to sounds upon the stairway as they meet in this strange confluence of both terror and sadness. They did so because word has been spreading on this day. This is now the evening. 
And they heard these women testify as they went to the tomb that it was empty and there was angels there who declared that Christ was resurrected. And it was from that point, it almost seems like all day long, people are running back and forth from the tomb and trying to investigate, figure out all that it means. And then eventually Mary Magdalene shows up as we considered last week and testifies that I've seen him, he is alive. And then eventually some pilgrims on their way to Emmaus, a man named Cleopas is going to testify, I've seen him too, he's alive, I've eaten lunch with him. We have spent time together. And so they begin to gather, I trust, in a great deal of confusion and fear and disbelief behind these locked doors, not sure what is going on. And it's in the midst of all that, that fear that we read in verse 19, Jesus came and stood among them. Now the question is, how did he get there? I read one uh, account that said he swung through the window. I think that's a good trick since it's on the second floor. It is the upper room after all. Uh, an- another has said he, he snuck in before the doors were locked and hid in the corner. Uh, still another has said the doorkeeper lied and let him in. I'm not so sure. Uh, uh, in fact, I-, I don't think Jesus knocked. I don't think Jesus knew the secret password. I, I-, I, don't-, I don't think Jesus, you know, popped out for from behind a shrubbery in the corner. I I think he just appeared. I think he just instantly was in the middle of them. In fact, if you look in verse 26, notice once again, eight days later, the disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although, notice that word, the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them. Right, And so the doors were locked and yet Jesus somehow has made it there. And he is beginning to show them what, what his glorified body can do. It can eat and, and be embraced and yet it can appear and disappear at the same time. In fact, when he was with the disciples on the way to Emmaus, he, he uh, broke bread with them and then he just vanished. He just disappeared in, their, in, in front of them. And we also know as we consider last week that he simply just passed through the, the grave clothes. This is the difference between Jesus' resurrection and, and that of Lazarus. Remember in John chapter 11 when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead after dying four days earlier. And Lazarus had to struggle in order to get up and obey the command of Christ to come forth. For he was uh, uh, shrouded, wrapped with these linen cloths. The Bible tells us in John 11 and verse 44, The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. You see, the people had to free Lazarus because he had a mortal body. He would die again. But Jesus' body is immortal. It will not die again. In fact, in Romans chapter 6 and verse 9, the Bible says he will never die again. Why is this important for us? Well, friends, I, I tell you, if you belong to Jesus, you will become like him. The Bible in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 21 says, but our citizenship is in heaven and from there we await a savior who will transform your lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to his control. Christ is the first fruits and we shall become like him. If you belong to him by faith, as our brother Caleb does, you one day will receive a body like his, a perfect body, perfectly suited to live in this world in which one day he shall recreate for us. This is a fallen world. We, you realize you have a lowly body, don't you? I don't have to prove that to you, I hope. This is a lowly world. In fact, I, I went backpacking um, on Friday and Saturday. I came out yesterday afternoon. I went with Ben Cochran and Tim Stumbaugh. Uh, did it rain here on Friday? 
because it certainly rained where we were. I mean, it was a four-hour downpour. I was looking for the ark. It was incredible how much rain was coming down. And we were hiking along the ridge, and we were listening to the thunder kind of roll over our heads and just wondering, when will we actually get off this ridge? And and finally, uh, my brother Ben led us to a, a campsite because we were exhausted after hiking about 12 miles in that rain, and we found this campsite. And it wasn't until about an hour later that we all realized every tree around us, though there were many, every single one of them was dead. It was like the valley of death that Ben brought us to. And, 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 and it was just, what happened? And we figured out this insect is killing all these trees. It's a fallen world. In fact, it is so fallen that a tree actually fell and woke us up at 6 a.m., a massive tree just feet from our tent. And that was rather, please don't tell my wife that, by the way. She's not here, and so we'll, we'll, or we'll blame it on Ben, or we'll do one thing. But the, this, it, it, we, we look around, and though this place is wonderful and beautiful, and it, it restored my soul just being out there, there's, there's evidence of corruption and curse and fallenness. This is not how things are supposed to be. And one day, Christ has shown us what, just a glimpse of what it will be like. He's the first fruits of the new creation in his body. And one day we shall be like him. And, and he comes and miraculously appears in the middle of them. And if you read Luke's account, they panic. And, and, and they don't greet Jesus with, with songs of praise, but I trust shouts of fear. And you could kind of appreciate their response because if you were gathering together with some friends mourning the loss of someone who just died but a couple days ago and all of a sudden that same person appears in the middle of you and he's like, howdy, how are you guys doing? Right? You would be somewhat intimidated as well. And it's perhaps for this reason that Jesus, the first word that Jesus says to them here at the end of verse 19 are, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Isn't that wonderful? When you think about these disciples... And what they have done over the past three or four days, they've abandoned him, denied him, refused to own him. I mean, they didn't even go to the funeral. They just all ran and hid. I would be thinking, whatever happened to, even if I must die, I will never deny you. And they broke all their promises to stay with him. And it's amazing that Christ rose from the dead, isn't it? But is it not also amazing that he doesn't show up and begin to scold these guys, lay into them? You guys want to explain yourself. Where were you when I needed you? Why, why were you running to save yourself when they were nailing me to a cross? You're a bunch of cowards. It's amazing he doesn't say, I'm done with you. I'm going to find 12 others. I'm going elsewhere. But, but instead, the Lord comes and he announces peace with, peace be with you. He, be not afraid. I don't come to you in wrath as a judge. I don't come to you in frustration and anger. I bring something far different from my tomb. I bring peace with God. Peace with God. This is how he comes. This is how he's always come. This is how he comes today, isn't it? That, that we who are far from him, we who have fallen, we who have broken our promises, we who have turned our back upon him, he comes to us. He is there with us all the time and he is willing to offer us peace whenever we will turn to him. He does not wait for you to justify your selfish behavior or turn from your sinful life. He is there waiting for you to call to him that he might give you peace. He might bring that to you. Can you not testify that, Christian? Do you not know that whenever you wandered far from God and you 
turn to them, he, turn to him. He is there waiting for you with open arms, not with a scowl upon his face, but with grace and mercy to offer you that he has purchased through the cross. This is who he is. Fear not. Do not be dismayed. I am your God. I will be with you, he says. Well, he appears and he says peace to them. And again, if you read Luke's account, um, they're still troubled. Um, in fact, Luke says they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And they didn't know what was going on. They, I mean, they saw him die. And now he's in the middle of that room. They actually thought he was a ghost. Now, I've never seen a ghost before. Um, and I like to keep it that way. Right? Um, I don't think that would be a fun experience at all. And, and this is what they think. They're somewhat intimidated. This is what many people think. Even Christians sometimes think. That we're going to spend eternity as these spirits floating from one cloud to another. And the Bible doesn't teach us any, anything of the sort. It teaches us a bodily resurrection. That is the Christian hope. And when they didn't understand that, and they didn't know what was going on. Is this, is this an angel? Is this a demon? Is this a ghost? It's like a Scooby-Doo episode. They, they don't know what is happening here. They're full of fear and confusion. And, and it's perhaps because of this, we read verse 20. When he had said this, when he had said, peace be with you, he showed them his hands and his sides. He, he said, look at my scars. He even invites them to touch him. You don't think I'm real. Touch me. Give me a hug. It's me. I'm alive. Jesus rose from the dead. He rose bodily from the dead. He talked to the man on the road to Emmaus just like a man. Mary Magdalene thought he was a gardener. His feet are not floating off the ground. He is flesh and blood. He is not a ghost. And he comes and says, I, I'm alive. And he's showing them this. And he shows them his scars. He says, it's me. I'm alive. But the reason he shows them his scars is not simply to prove his, his resurrection, but it is to give them reason for hope that they actually have peace with God that he announces. He shows them his scars to say, this is how you have peace. You have peace because I've been pierced for your transgressions. I alone have shed my blood for the remission of your sin. I alone make peace between you and God. This is our eternal Lord, though glorified, I believe, will forever bear his scars. I don't think I will bear my scars when I receive my glorified body. But Christ will, as an eternal reminder that our sins have been paid for. It is finished. And we have peace with God. And they instantly have peace. And not only that, that peace leads to joy. As we see, secondly, the church is given joy. Read on in verse 20. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Their response, maybe your translation says, they were overjoyed that they were, they were rejoicing. One moment they were fearing for their lives. The next moment they were, they were overjoyed. All their fears are gone. Their hopes are fulfilled. I, I trust they were shouting and, and hugging each other. Maybe others were falling to their knees in disbelief for this joy that, that Christ had made good on his promise. In fact, he said on Thursday before his crucifixion in John 16, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. And what's amazing is that their joy doesn't fade. That's exactly what happens. No one takes their joy from them. You notice Christ is not changing their circumstances. The Jews are still out to get them. The, the Romans are still out to get them. Nothing changes as far as their safety or security. The thing that changes is that they now have joy in their heart. And joy becomes a, a distinctive mark of the Christian. 
In fact, you look in Acts chapter 5, for instance, when some of them are handed over to the Sanhedrin, the same body that just uh, months earlier crucified the Lord, and now they're handed before them, dragged before them, and even flogged and told not to speak of Jesus anymore. And the Bible says they, they left rejoicing. And you could follow throughout Scripture this, this trail of joy that, that even though their troubles have not changed, their circumstances have not changed. They now know that what they truly value is secure in Christ because of his resurrection. You follow it through the pages of scripture or the annals of church history or even people in this room who have joy in the midst of hardship and difficulty because Christ has brought that to them. He has exchanged sorrow for joy and grief for gladness and he gives joy to the hurting. We live in a world that is full of trouble. Just these, are, these apostles experience all that, and you experience it. We, we live in a life that there is pain and difficulty in the life that we live. Unmet desires and shattered dreams and unexpected diseases and inevitable death. And Jesus has come to conquer all of that and to place joy in our heart. I tell you this morning that sin is not victorious. That death is not victorious. Jesus is. And some of you have lost people that you dearly love, perhaps recently. Some of you perhaps are getting to what may be close to the end of your life. And maybe for some that that fills us with fear or sadness. Death is our enemy. It It is a curse brought by sin. But I want you to understand, if you are in Christ, Your enemy has been defeated. You have victory over that. And they, I think, understand this when it says the disciples were glad. He doesn't use the the normal word for joy. He uses a very unusual word. It was a word that was uh, came from the Battle of Marathon, a decisive battle in which Greece defeated Persia hundreds of years before Jesus. And a man named... uh, Fitterpes, a champion runner, after the victory, threw down his shield and ran the over 26 miles to tell the good news to victorious Athens. He burst into the, uh, the uh, Acropolis and he cried out, Kareth, Kareth, which means we have won. This is the same word that's used here. It's this idea that we have joy through victory. Jesus' disciples saw that he was alive and they're rejoicing that their enemy was defeated. Our future is secure with Christ because he rose. This was the picture of baptism, is it not? That our brother Caleb has, has died to himself and been united in Christ's resurrection uh, and, and will live forever. And that is what Christ has come and it fills us with this joy. And so Christ comes and gives them peace and gives them joy. But he just doesn't come to reassure them. He comes to send them on mission. He noticed thirdly, the church is given a purpose. In verse 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. See, they're sent with the authority of Christ. They're sent. You are my sent ones. He says, They are to continue the ministry of Christ. They are to bear witness to his work, to point others to Jesus. He came and and lived the life that we could not live and died the death that we should have died and rose again. And his name is Jesus. His work is finished. And our job and their job, the church community's job, is to be sent like Christ. You are sent, Christian. Do you realize that? You see that that verse there in in verse 21? He sends you. Excuse me. Yeah, verse 21. As I have been sent, so I am sending you. You. 
All of us who claim the name of Christ are missionaries. We are sent ones to proclaim the work that Jesus has done. In fact, we're told where to do it. And Luke will tell us in the parallel account that to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. All the nations need to hear this. The Bible foretold this long ago. Abraham, God spoke to, said all the nations will be blessed through your offspring, referring to Christ. He said through the prophet Isaiah, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. He said in Psalm 22, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. All nations. This is the, the theme throughout scripture. All nations should hear this. Well, what if, what if the nation already has a religion? Should we tell them? Yes. What if, what if they disagree with us? They don't like our religion. Should we still tell them? Yes. Well, isn't that unloving? No. You know what's unloving is to allow people to continue to worship a false god. And then one day allow them to stand before the real God, having rejected him their whole life. We are to go and to proclaim the gospel. We are to tell the nations, our, our neighbors and the nations. And, and this is a, obviously a huge calling. And you think, how are we going to tell the nations? Well, I'm glad you asked. We, we happen, I don't know if you heard, but this weekend we happen to be bringing in six of our gospel partners that are all over this nation and some outside this nation. And they're going to be here this weekend in our missions conference. And many of us are going to eat with them on Friday night in homes scattered throughout this community and be able to pray with them. And then on Saturday morning, gather together and, and be able to pray for them and support their work. And then on Sunday, they're going to be here as well. And they're going to teach our Sunday school classes. And they're, uh, Kevin McKay, our brother who plant, planted the church in Rhode Island, Providence, is going to come and bring us God's message. And we can come and support those who are actually going to the far and difficult places and proclaiming Christ. But we also have a responsibility for us to go. We have a responsibility for us to engage the nations. This church already does an amazing work with the Lakota Indians. And I know some are even going next month. And what about three teams or maybe even four teams go each year to, to work amongst that people group. And there are other opportunities that I trust that God will be bringing us. In fact, during our missions conference, we have a speaker who has spent 20 years ministering to Muslims in India and Bangladesh and Pakistan. And not only doing that work himself, but he has partnered with American churches to help promote that work and continue that work. And he's going to be here to challenge us and point us and guide us that we may consider as a church, how is it that we can be sent? We are sent ones. Hamilton Baptist Church is a sent church. We are to be sent like Christ has been sent. As I have been sent, so I am sending you, Jesus says. And we, we think about that and we think, well, how are we going to do that? How can I, how can I do that? Well, Jesus tells us that we don't do it alone as we see fourthly, the church is given power. Note verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. You see, they're, they're empowered. They're not just sent, but they're, they're, they're equipped. Remember when Christ began his ministry and he walked into the, the waters there to be baptized by John. And God spoke from heaven after his baptism and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And the spirit of God descended upon him and empowered him for that ministry came upon him. And Jesus is saying, as I've been sent, so I'm sending you. And as I received the Holy Spirit to empower my ministry, so I am sending the spirit upon you to empower you. Christian, one reason you're given the Holy Spirit in your life 
is not simply to sanctify you and to guide you and to help you understand Scripture and so forth, though He does those things. One reason you're given the Holy Spirit is that you might be equipped to be witnesses for Christ. That He might motivate you and propel you and open your mouth that you might declare the one whom you love above all things. Christ comes and He breathes on them and He says, receive the Holy Spirit as He sends them on mission. Now there's some confusion, some debate here. Do they receive the Holy Spirit here? Or was it later on in Acts? And I, I tend to think that they don't actually receive the Spirit here, that they actually receive it as Tom read for us in, in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus says, you will receive my Spirit, you will receive power when my Spirit comes upon you, and then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I think this is more rather a pledge that the Holy Spirit is coming upon them, that He's going to come 50 days later at Pentecost. In fact, Jesus would say in John 16, When I go to the Father, I will send the Spirit to you. And so it's only when he goes to the Father that he'll send the Spirit. In fact, you notice they're not going to change much. Right? He says, receive the Holy Spirit, and, and they don't go out and start preaching after that. You know, notice verse 26, eight days later, the disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Right? Even eight days later, they're still hiding and cowering and locking the doors. There's not, no one's out preaching. There's no transformation. But you read Acts, and the Spirit comes upon them, and Peter stands up in front of thousands, and this courageous preaching and this extraordinary power begins to proclaim the gospel that he has seen Christ raised from the dead. The Holy Spirit empowered him and he continues to empower us. He continues to work in us. We cannot do this in our own power. We need to ask God to bring the Spirit upon us. I don't know if you ever feel inadequate for the work that God's called you to do. You ever look at it and say, how am I going to do that? I mean, if, if you don't, you're not paying attention, I don't think. He calls us to do things that are just amazingly difficult. But he doesn't call us to do it in our own strength. The Christian life is not what you can do for God. It is what God will do in you and accomplish through you, through His Spirit. You can't do it. Jesus understands that. I'm sending the Spirit. We, we need help. Our missionaries who are going to come this weekend, they need help. We're going to pray for them in homes on Friday night, lay on hands, ask God to fill them with an abundance of the Spirit that they might continue their work. We're going to pray for them on Saturday morning, asking God to fill them with the Spirit that they may continue their work. On Sunday morning, we're going to line them up front and we're going to pray one by one over our gospel partners, asking God to fill them with the Spirit that they may continue their work. We, we need the Spirit of God to do this work. And Christ is teaching us there. It's Interesting how he does it because he breathed on them. You saw that in verse 22? And nowhere else do you see anything like this in the New Testament. But you do see a couple places in the Old Testament that I wonder if Jesus is referring to. One of them is found in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. And the Bible tells us, The Lord God formed man and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. You know that picture when God creates man and he breathes into him and gives him life. And now you have Christ who has passed through death, the firstborn of this new creation. And he comes like God did of old on Adam and he breathes on them. Receive my spirit. He's starting a new creation, isn't he? He's starting a new community, a community in Jesus Christ. And they begin there as he promises them that the spirit is coming. This is how he equips us. We need this help. I think Hamilton Baptist Church needs the Holy Spirit of God. 
We need Him to come upon us in greater power. This is what He did to 120 people and now hundreds of millions of people in every nation across this world bow their knee to King Jesus just as He promised. Jesus is alive. The Bible is true. And He is working through His church everywhere. We believe that, don't we? That Christ continues to work. We've seen Him work even this morning. We rejoice in that work. We long to be part of that work. God, help us. Father, send Your Spirit upon us. We need that equipping as He breathes upon them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And then finally, you see, He gives them a message. In verse 23, He says, if you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. You see, the message that He gives them is one of forgiveness. You are to talk and proclaim forgiveness. Now, undoubtedly, this message is difficult to understand. This, this verse here is, is difficult to understand. Many um, understand it, I believe, incorrectly. For instance, the Roman Catholics understand, I would say misunderstand this verse to say that they believe it's teaching if a clergy, a priest, forgives someone their sin, God will respond to that priest's forgiveness and then forgive that person. And so the priest could say, your sins are not forgiven. And then God will respond by not forgiving that sin. And they call this the right of absolution. And they they take it from this verse that God is going to respond to the mediator. Is that right? I don't think it is. In fact, you're never going to see a single occasion in the Bible in which an apostle stands up and, and declares that he has authority to forgive sin. That I'm now forgiving your sin. Rather, you'll see countless uh, occasions like when Peter spoke to Cornelius who says, whoever believes in him shall receive the remission of sins. In fact, the Bible says in Mark chapter 2, who can forgive sins but God alone? Right? It's God who forgives sins, not man. That's important. If you, you were driving to church this morning and perhaps you had a difficult morning in your home and Maybe a difficult car ride over to the church building. And maybe you express your difficulty with your spouse in an unkind way. Right? And maybe there's a little bit of conflict in the car. And then you pull into the church parking lot and all of a sudden the smiles appear. Right? Hey, how you doing? I'm great. God bless you. Everything's wonderful. Right? This is hypothetical, of course. We're just pretend with me for a little bit. Right? Right? And, and then, then you find me after service and you say, uh, Stephen, um, I was this morning uh, fighting with my, my husband. I was fighting with my wife. And I, I believe I've sinned against them. W- will you please forgive me? Right? I will tell you, you are talking to the wrong person. Right? You need to go talk to your spouse. And you need to talk to God. You don't need my forgiveness. You need God's forgiveness. You need the one that you've sinned against and their forgiveness. God is the one who forgives. And on the basis of God's forgiveness, what you and I get to do, we get to proclaim that forgiveness has happened. Right? You have the right, Christian, based upon this verse, the authority given by God to tell someone whether their sins are forgiven or are not forgiven based upon what they do with Jesus. Right? If someone repents and trusts in Christ, you get to say to them, By the authority of God's word, your sins are forgiven. You get to declare that. I mean, that's what we did in baptism, is it not? 
That we are declaring that Caleb's sins are forgiven, all of them, forever, washed away by Christ's blood. Forgiveness is given to him. So what we do when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, and we lift the cup, and we proclaim to one another the blood of Christ, the remission, spilt for the remission of sin, we're saying to one another, you are forgiven because of your trust in Christ, because of his work in Christ. We're simply declaring what God has already done. And, and likewise, if someone says, no, I, I reject Christ. I don't want Jesus. I don't believe in Jesus. I'll go my own way. You have the biblical authority to say to them, your sins are not forgiven. You're not the one forgiving or not forgiving. You're just proclaiming what God has told you He is going to do. Could you imagine if we didn't have that authority? Can you imagine what that would be like if we couldn't do that? Like you, you pray with someone and, and they say, you know, I believe that Jesus Christ is the sinless Son of God. I believe He died upon the cross for my sins and rose three days later. I love him. I want to repent of my life. And this person calls out and says, God, please forgive me. I trust you. I need you. I need you to forgive my sin. I'd give my life to you. And then they look at you and they say, what am I forgiven? And you, and you say to them, well, I don't know. Right? I guess we'll find out one day. Right? No, you don't say that, do you? You have the authority of God to say, I tell you based upon the authority of God's Word, if your faith is genuine, you are forgiven of your sin. That is our message. That is what we gather together because we have been forgiven, because we can celebrate forgiveness, because we want to proclaim forgiveness. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. Please understand this. That though the church does many things, uh, our core, our main thing is not helping the poor. It's not having children's programs. It's not giving people uh, avenues for musical expression. Our, the core of who we are are people who rejoice in blood-bought forgiveness and delight to tell people where they can find it. It's in Christ. But in, therefore, in order to be forgiven, you have to understand that you have sin. Right? We don't like to talk about sin these days. Sin's uncomfortable. We like to talk about other people's sin, but not our own sin. Right? And when we do talk about sin, we, we, we excuse, excuse the sin. You know, I'm this way because of my parents or because of you know, my, my circumstances or because of my upbringing and, and all these things. So we blame it on the bad day. We, we blame it on hard times. We, we blame it on troubling circumstances. We, we excuse our sin by saying, well, nobody's perfect. Well, there's one person who's perfect. There's one who is perfect. And, and his name is Jesus. Amen. He died on the cross because you're not perfect. And I'm not perfect. In fact, I've rebelled against him. I sinned against him. And I deserve to be punished for that sin. A good and righteous and just God will not sweep rebellion under the rug, but he has done the work to pay the price for our sin. He died upon the cross and three days later he rose from the dead. He is alive and I tell you you may have peace with God today and forevermore. You may have joy in your soul and his spirit in your heart if you will bow your knee to King Jesus. Father, I pray that you would help us. Help us to follow Christ. Help us to be sent by Christ. Help us through your Spirit. Open our mouths. 
Let us overcome fear that keeps us quiet. Let us proclaim Christ in our workplace. Let us proclaim it in our school. Let us proclaim it amongst our neighbors. Let us come alongside those who give their lives to proclaiming it in difficult places. God, I pray that you would make us a church who wants to live for the fame of King Jesus and build his kingdom. We need help, Father. We need your spirit. We don't do this like we should. I don't do this like I should. Please help Hamilton Baptist Church become people dedicated to building the kingdom of God in one another's lives and the lives of those who are lost, who live next door and live across this world. Do this work, please, Father. Let us understand the great privilege that we have been sent for this work. We pray for our friend here this morning that may have not given their life to Christ, that they may have rejected Christ. They may think, well, Christ works for some, but he does not work for me. I pray, dear Lord, that you would even now, through your spirit and your proclaimed word, show them that Christ has risen from the dead, that there are witnesses to testify to this, that he alone gives life and life forevermore, that they would turn from rebellion and bow their knee to King Jesus and receive the forgiveness that you would so freely give. Why will they not receive forgiveness? Why will they not receive your grace? Oh, please, God, work in their hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.